Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Thank you for your excellent singing. That always makes me think of uh, the verses in the New Testament that explain how We have the opportunity to admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and it's such a blessing to be here on a Sunday and to uh, gather and sing together and sing to one another uh, praises to God and to help one another as we struggle through life. Uh, So you can grab your copy of Scripture and turn back to Psalm 69. And as you turn there, I wonder if you've ever heard the saying, I'm just trying to keep my head above water. Uh, Maybe you said that this week, I don't know. But there's other sayings like that, but this one is fitting for our text because there's uh, that same language in our text that uh, the Davidic king uses. So as we read through it, you might remember how he described that the water has come up to his neck, that he has no footing, that he's sinking. And he paints this picture of what life is, in a sinful world, is like. It's filled with suffering. And it's not always from our own decisions. Some people sin against us, but sometimes it's a result of our own choices and the things that we have done. And so, as we look through this text, uh, we understand that we also will go through suffering. And I, I think back to when I was a child and how I didn't Uh, really think about suffering. As a child, uh, if suffering hadn't touched your life, it just wasn't something that that affected you. And even when uh, maybe someone in the church passed away or something, uh, just as a child, you didn't, uh, you know, that didn't make sense to you, uh, how suffering in the world worked. And so if you're a child here this morning, maybe you've had a friend move away, or maybe you've lost your, your blankie or your favorite toy or something like that. Maybe you didn't get what you wanted for your birthday. Um, so those can be, be suffering in a way, and it can lead us to despair. And so the encouragement today is, uh, if you haven't suffered yet, or you don't realize that you suffered yet, you will suffer. At some point in your life, there will be suffering. And we want to learn to look to God in that. And so if you're an adult here, most likely you have had suffering touch your life. Uh, You have experienced uh, what suffering is like. So maybe you've had a child walk away from the Lord. Maybe you were fired from your job. Maybe your spouse was unfaithful to you. Maybe you're suffering from a loss. Maybe you lost a baby. Maybe your parent passed away. Maybe one of your close friends moved away or passed away. Maybe your suffering has come from an illness or an injury. Maybe you've had a recent diagnosis of an illness or a disease. Maybe you have uh, recently gotten hurt and you're injured. Maybe you're struggling with thoughts of harming yourself or others. Maybe you're suffering as a result of your own sin. Maybe you've lost someone close to you because of your sin against them. Maybe a close friend. Maybe you're suffering because of sinful choices you made when you were a child or a young person and you still have effects and suffering from that today. 
The point is, is that Psalm 69 is for all of us. We all are sufferers, and we all need to not let ourselves go the way that we naturally would want to, to go into despair and to be mad at God, but rather to turn to God in our despair and to look to Him in hope and faith, even when we feel like we're sinking and we're underwater, and we pray to God, do not let the waters close over me. Do not let my soul go down to the pit, as David wrote in Psalm 69. And so I don't know if you're, if you're suffering this morning, but if you are, this is really helpful. It's, it's a helpful text to see what the Lord Jesus Christ went through as a sufferer on our behalf, and to realize his pattern of hope as he suffered, and how we can follow that same pattern. And so Psalm 69 helps us answer the question of, what should we do when we're suffering? And the answer is, we should lament to God when we are suffering and need saving. And so throughout this text, uh, the Davidic king calls upon God to save him. And so the word um, save comes up four times in the text. So I just want to point that out for us. Right in verse 1, save me, O God. And then in verse 13 in the fourth line, he says, hear me in the truth of your salvation. And then in verse 29, he says, but I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. And then lastly, in verse 35, for God will save Zion. And so we see the the hope that is given here in the salvation of the Lord. And so our text this morning will follow uh, these mentions of God's salvation and how even when we're in the, the deepest waters of suffering, we can call upon God to save us and we can trust that God will save. And so as we go through this psalm, you'll notice that it's a Davidic psalm. Uh, King David wrote this. Uh, the interesting thing about the psalm is there's five times in the New Testament that uh, biblical authors quote this psalm and say, this was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Jesus did this to fulfill uh, what was written, to, written by David. And so uh, where, where is it talking about the life of David? Where is it talking about the life of Christ? Uh, that's not all clear. I think it's not all about Christ because uh, you can see in verse 5, in the second line, it says, and my sins are not hidden from you. So I don't think uh, Jesus would pray that as he was not uh, sinful, he was sinless. And so there, there's parallels here. And so I'll kind of refer to the, the writer of the psalm as the Davidic king, because it's both uh, King David, and then it's also his greater son. It's fulfilled in him as well, in Jesus, the true Davidic king. And so You can think about this in terms of it's a psalm in relation to the Davidic covenant. And so the promises made to David held true in the life of Christ. God fulfilled his promises to David, and we see that in Jesus' life and death for us. And so this helps us as we think through how is this psalm helpful for us? Well, first it's helpful to see how hard the suffering was for our Lord that he did for us that he bore on the cross in our place. And then it helps us to see that Christ was an example of how we are to live life, of how we are to suffer. And so this becomes a pattern of hope for all believers to walk by faith and hope in God's promises, even in the worst 
suffering. And so as we work through uh, these verses, uh, we'll kind of take some application for us in the points of how we are to lament like Jesus is the idea. So the first thing we'll see is that to lament to God when you are suffering and need saving, we have to talk frankly with God and your church about what is wrong. So our tendency as people is when we go through something hard is to say, you know, I can do this on my own. I don't need to tell anyone. And we internalize it and hold on to it and we don't tell anyone. But that's the opposite of what we see the Davidic king doing in, these, uh, in this first section. So in this section, he's very honest with God. He says everything that he's thinking and feeling, and it's really hard stuff. And he paints a picture using uh, him in the water and him sinking to help us feel what it's like in his suffering. And so starting in the, uh, the prescription, it says, To the chief musician set to the lilies, a psalm of David. It's really interesting. I don't know what the, the lilies is, but it sounds like kind of a joyful tune. But this psalm is not a joyful tune. This is a psalm that hits us in our worst suffering and despair. So someday in heaven we'll have to ask God, what is the tune of the lilies? And is it really sad or, or what, what is it? So, so starting in verse 1, The Davidic king cries out to God, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. And so right away we see the Davidic king sharing what he's feeling. So he's not actually in water sinking, but it feels like he is. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're in water and you're, you're struggling to get your head up, maybe when you were learning to swim or something, but that's a really scary feeling because if you go below the water, you can't breathe and you're going to die. And so here he is sharing the, the great despair and sorrow uh, that he is feeling because of the circumstances that he's going through. And so he starts out and lets us know how he's feeling with this picture of sinking. And then he shares that uh, in verse 3 that he's weary with crying and his throat is dry and his eyes fail while he waits for my God. And so he shares that through the midst of this suffering, it's been a long time. His, uh, he, he's weary because he's been crying for so long. His throat is dry because he's been crying so much. And his eyes are failing because he's been waiting on God for so long for deliverance. And so he's showing us that he's been here for a long time. He's felt this way for, for we don't know how long, but, but for a while. Long enough that he's, he's failing in strength. And so this picture that he paints for us is very dire. He, he's in full despair, worried that he's going to go below the water, And he shares with us the circumstances surrounding why he feels this way in the next verses. So in verse 4, he says, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. And so as we read through that, we see the things that the Davidic king is facing. And verse 4 is directly quoted in John 15 when Jesus talks about how they hated my father and they hated me, they will hate you also. And then at the end of that text in John 15, 25, 
uh, it says, this was said that it might fulfill that first line, those who hate me without a cause. And so why would anyone hate the Messiah? Why would anyone hate Jesus who came to save them from their sins? There's really no good reason other than they didn't like what he had to say about who they are in their sin. And so they have no accusation against him. And so they're slandering him. They're defaming him. As we look through these, uh, he has many enemies, as many as the hairs on his head. They want to destroy him, and they're strong. They're his enemies wrongfully. And though he has stolen nothing, he still must destroy it. And so they're lying about him and saying, look at these bad things that he's done. Don't follow him. And he's called upon to repay things that he has not stolen. And so he's suffering innocently. And I think this is referring to Christ, that, that in his uh, pursuit of doing what the Father has asked him to do, he's doing everything right. He's following the Father perfectly, and they still hate him. They still reject him. They're still his enemies, and they uh, slander him and lie about him. And so then in the next couple of verses, he kind of opens himself up to God, and he says, God, you know who I am. You see what I'm like. You judge. You tell me if I've done anything wrong. So in verse 5, he says, O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. And so here in verse 6, he shares that he doesn't want his shame and reproach, the, the things that have come upon him because of those who hate him as his enemies, he doesn't want that to stop others. He doesn't want that to fall to those who are waiting on the Lord and seeking him. And he doesn't want uh, the things that he's going through to stop others from coming to God. And so he asks God to help those who are coming and not to be ashamed because of, because of him. And then in verse 7, he, he shares uh, why he's bearing reproach. He says, because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. And so again, he's suffering innocently. And because they hate the Father, they hate the Son. And they, they bring reproach upon him because uh, they do not like God. And as a result of this, he's uh, a stranger to his brothers in verse 8, and an alien to his mother's children. He's being rejected by his own family. So not only is he he's suffering all these things, but he's alone. His own blood has left him, and he is suffering by himself, and he's crying out to God in the midst of it. And we see why he's suffering in verse 9, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And so he's suffering because he loves the house of God. And the house of God is a representation of God's presence, of God himself. And he says, God, they, uh, they hate me because I love you. I love being in your house. I love your presence. I love you. And because I love you, that's why they hate me. And so his, his suffering has come, a, come as a result of his own zeal and love for God. And this verse is quoted in John 2, 17, right before Jesus cleanses the temple, or maybe right after, I can't remember. But Jesus comes to God's house, the temple, where the Spirit of God is to reside amongst his people, and he finds them uh, selling sacrifices. And he says, you've made my house a den of thieves. 
And he, he purges it. He sends them all out. And then this, it says, he did this that this might be fulfilled in Jesus. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. It says the disciples remember this verse and say, oh yeah, that's why Jesus is cleansing the, tape, the temple. And then uh, the second part of that verse is quoted in Romans 15. It says, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And it's quoted uh, in the context of Jesus and in the context of Paul telling the church that you should care for one another in your weaknesses. It says, you who are strong, bear with the scruples of the weak, is kind of what it says. And what that means is you who are able, you who aren't going through something hard right now, carry those who are suffering, carry those who are weak, who are going through something hard right now. And it says, for the Lord did not please himself, but rather he bore the reproach of others. And so his example is set for us as a church of how we care for one another, that he bore the reproaches of others. And we know that he ultimately did that on the cross when he died on the cross, not for his own reproach, but for ours, when he took our sin and died for it on the cross. And then as we go down through 10 through 12, uh, he describes how even his, his weeping, his lamenting has brought reproach as well. He says, I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. And so here's the Messiah, the one who should be recognized as the Davidic king, as the one who is here to save the world, to, to save Israel. And rather, he's a, a byword, and he's the song of the drunkards. And it's the complete opposite of what it should be. They should love him. They should accept him. They should trust in him. But instead, they reject him and hate him. And so as we work through these first verses, we see the Davidic king just being completely honest. He says exactly what he feels. He says exactly how he's been sinned against and how he's suffering. And it goes back to that first phrase in verse 1, save me, O God. This is where I'm at. Help me. Deliver me from where I am suffering. And it goes all the way to the point where he's lamenting, he's being ridiculed, and he's made a joke by the drunkards. I remember in high school, uh, my freshman year, uh, my basketball team, uh, our coach, left to go somewhere else. And so uh, it was a little mixed up of what we were going to do to start the season because we didn't have a coach yet. And one of the assistant coaches that was still there, he was the conditioning coach, and he was the only one left. So he conditioned us for like two months leading up to the season. Usually it's like two weeks, but he didn't really play basketball. He just knew how to run us really hard. Um, and I remember that as he would run us or, you know, whatever we were doing, we have to do push-ups and all sorts of things. And I think his goal was like he would go until someone lost their lunch um, like, then he, then he knew that we were going hard enough and not faking it or whatever, but I remember one time we were, we were running, and he would never uh, let an excuse fly of like, hey, you know, I'm not feeling so good, can I, can I go sit down for a minute and take a break? He would never be like, yeah, yeah, you know, you deserve a break, you know, you've been working really hard. He would always say, I can't feel your pain. If you need to stop, stop. And it was kind of like this question of manhood of like, are you going to keep going or not? Like, can it really be that bad? You know? So anyways, it was awful. Uh, 
And I remember one specific time, uh, my, my legs were really hurting. I was lifting at that time too, and my quads and my legs were slightly torn. And so we were running, and it just burned like crazy. And that's one of those things that it only heals up from rest, and we're you know, out there sprinting all day long, and it was awful. And so I remember going up to him that one time and saying, you know, hey, I think my quads are injured. You know, can I take a break? And he was like, I can't feel your pain. You know, do what you got to do. And uh, I can't remember what I did, but <laughs> I probably took a break. <laughs> but talk about suffering. That was pretty bad. Um, but that is true of us as well. Sometimes when we suffer, we think that someone should notice. We think that someone should come up to us and ask, how are you really doing? Um, and we, we kind of assume that people are going to love us in a certain way and come to us and help us in our suffering and our hurt. And oftentimes that doesn't happen, and it's true of what my conditioning coach said, I can't feel your pain unless you tell me. If you tell me, then I can, I can weep with you. I can mourn with you. I can lament with you. But until you tell a brother or sister um, in our church, uh, no one's going to know. And so I think, first of all, we need to talk frankly with God. We need to go to God and tell him how we feel. We need to tell him uh, what we feel like, that idea of the waters, I'm sinking, um, I'm about to drown. But then we also need to tell him what has affected us, what circumstances have hurt us. And I'm not asking you to complain to God, but like right up to the edge of that. I want you to be honest with him. I want you to tell you how the sinful world is affecting you and how you are suffering in it and the circumstances that surround it and to be just completely candid with God about what is going on. And then after that, I think like Romans 15 shared, we need to go to someone who's able to help carry us in our church. We need to, as someone who's suffering, someone who's weak, we need to go to someone who's not suffering right then, who's maybe been through suffering before, who can help us and to go to someone who's able to carry us and bear us up in that. And so if you're suffering today, my strong encouragement would be to talk to God about what you're going through. Don't sink into despair and and seclude yourself and say, no one is coming and asking me what's really going on. No one has noticed that I'm suffering. Why haven't they noticed? Don't, Don't say that to yourself. Instead, say, I need to go and tell someone. I need to let them know how I'm hurting you know, I can't feel your pain. You have to tell me. And so I just encourage you um, as one of your pastors that uh, we don't know what you're going through until you tell us. We would love to be omniscient like the father and to, you know, know that like so-and-so went to the doctor and got a hard diagnosis and they have cancer, but we don't know those things. You have to tell us or even better, one of your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church who can help walk beside you in that and encourage you uh, through that suffering. And I would encourage you, if you're, if you're not suffering right now, and someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm suffering, uh, can I talk to you about it? Take the time to listen to them. Take the time to, uh, to not shame them because of their reproach or the reproach that's been done against them. But like the Davidic king is asking, that uh, we would help carry them. We'd help bring them up. We'd help save them and point them to Christ and to hope in him instead of sinking into despair. 
And so we don't want to uh, use those things as a point of gossip or a point of slander or to joke about. We want to care for those things well as the body of Christ and care for one another as Christ cares for us. And so first, how do we lament to God when we are suffering and need saving? We have to talk frankly with God and our church about what is wrong. Uh, In the next section of verses, we see that we need to ask God to deal with us according to his loving kindness. And so as we work through these verses, we notice the contrast in verse 13. He says, but, but as for me. So here is how he's going to respond in how he feels and in how bad his circumstances are. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. And so as we work through these verses, uh, we see first in verse 13, uh, the covenant faithful, faithfulness word that is used of God's unconditional love and promises to the nation of Israel. That's the Hebrew word hesed, and it's seen in the third line of verse 13. O God, in the multitude of your mercy. And then it's seen down below in verse 16. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. And so those are the same word used there in both verses. And the idea is that God is, is faithful, that his love doesn't end, that it's not dependent upon my love for him or me, do, or, or me obeying him. It's dependent on his own character and his promises towards us. And so he's saying, I'm turning to you, Lord. I'm praying to you. And please, in the multitude of your loving kindness, your steadfast love, your unconditional love towards me, please hear me in the truth of your salvation. And so in these verses, he's calling on the Lord to hear him and to hear his plea for help in his suffering. And so then again, in verse 16, he says, Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. And so as we work through these verses, we see him, we've noticed in the verses before that he's been suffering a long time, and here he turns to God and says, please listen to my plea, please don't help me according to what I deserve. Help me according to your character. Help me according to your mercy, your faithfulness, your loving kindness. Please come and help me. And now in verse 19, uh, he shares again how God knows him. And he's going to get into uh, some, some more of the things that he's suffering through. He says, you know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And so as we work through those verses, we see again how uh, the Messiah, Christ, was alone in his suffering. He went to the cross. He accomplished salvation by himself. And we even see in verse 21 
It says, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And so this is mentioned in all four gospel accounts of Christ's death, that as Christ was on the cross, right before he cried out to God and said, why have you forsaken me? Or he he does this right after. They give him, they come and they bring him vinegar to drink, and he doesn't drink it. And then right after that, he says, it is finished, and he dies on the cross for our sins. And we see that he was alone in that. He was, even as he calls for God to hear him, he was forsaken by God on the cross. God left him. He was forsaken so that we would never have to be. And so when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never be forsaken. Christ went and suffered on the cross. He was forsaken by the Father so that we would never have to be. He suffered the worst so that we could suffer and still have hope in God, even in the worst of times. And then he gets into, uh, in verses 20 through, 22 through 28, uh, the imprecatory part of the psalm, where he calls down curses on his enemies. And you might notice as we go through here that some of these are fulfilled in the life of Judas. So let's read through these, and then we'll talk about them. It says, Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck, and talk of grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteousness, the, the righteous. And so through that, we see these awful curses that the Lord Jesus Christ is calling upon his enemies. And this is rightfully done as the Davidic king. I think David had the right to do this as God's representative king over Israel. And I think King Jesus had the right to do this as God's representative king And so, this is not something we should take part in. We should not be praying curses and asking God to hurt others. But as we read through uh, the Davidic king's uh, curses here, we see in verse 25, it says, Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. And so this was fulfilled in the life of Judas, the betrayer of the Messiah, the one who brought the enemy soldiers to where Jesus was located, and the one who betrayed him with a kiss. And in Acts 1.20, it's right after the uh, disciples choose someone to replace Judas. They're, they're seeking someone to fill the 12th spot, and they end up choosing Matthias. And it says at the end of that text, this happened that it might be fulfilled, that uh, the, to fill the spot of the one with whom their dwelling place would be desolate, and let no one live in their tents. And so Judas fulfilled this curse that Jesus prophesied, that that David prophesied would happen hundreds of years before. And it came to pass that Judas betrayed him, and Judas fulfilled and was then cursed by the imprecatory prayer of David all those years before. And as we keep going down through the verses, Uh, we see something interesting in verse 26. 
It says, For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. And so there's kind of this like, God, you're the only one who has the right to strike me. You're the only one that has the right to wound me. And we know that that's true of Jesus on the cross. That because he took our sins upon him, though he was sinless, God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross because he was bearing our reproaches. He was struck for us. He was wounded for us that we might experience salvation. And so as we look through those verses, it made me, you know, he he calls out several times for God to hear him. And it made me think of uh, myself as a dad. So if you're a parent, you can probably relate to this. Um, sometimes as a dad or a parent in general, it's easy to be present, but not really there. So you're there with your family and maybe you're reading something or watching something or working on a project. It's really easy to be there, but not, uh, be cognizantly there, if that makes sense. And so that happens all the time. And I remember as a kid that that's the best time to ask your parent for something (laughs) because they would just say yes you know, because they're working on something. So there's a pro tip for you kids um, if you've been wanting something. I'm just kidding. But me as uh, an earthly father, as a human father, I don't father perfectly, and I'm often not present, and I should work on that and try when I'm with my family to be present and to be, uh, you know, with them both physically and mentally and to enjoy being with them. But thankfully, our Heavenly Father is not limited. He's not human. He's God. He's divine, and he's unlimited, and he is able to hear us when we call to him. He never has those moments where he's spaced out thinking about something, or he's reading a book and thinking about that, and we're, you know, like, God, 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 can you, can you listen to us? You know, like a little kid. He always hears us. Like we sung in the song, Arise, My Soul, Arise, we have Jesus there interceding on our behalfs. He, he even brings our prayers to the Father and, and helps us in approaching him. And so that is something we can be so thankful for, that as we ask God to deal with us according to his loving kindness, we know that he hears us. We know that he hears us because Jesus has made a way, as Hebrew 4 talks about, that we can approach the throne of God boldly, because we have Jesus there to intercede on our behalf. And so we should be confident that God wants us to come to him because of his unconditional, steadfast love towards us. Jesus was struck by God for my reproach, my sins. He bore the reproach of another in dying on the cross. And so if you haven't trusted in Christ, you still bear the guilt and the shame and the weight and the penalty of your sin. And Jesus took that sin upon himself and went to the cross and paid for it. And you can have that that guilt removed, that weight lifted, that penalty paid for. You don't have to go through that for yourself. Jesus did it for you. And when we come to him and we trust that he died on the cross for our sin and rose again, he forgives us forever. And we always are able to come to God and ask for his help. We're able to say, deal with us according to your steadfast love. I know that you want to because you sent your son to die for my sin. And we now have a path through Jesus. He's the way to the Father. We're now able to come to him and ask for his help. 
And so we first have to realize that we're sinful and we need a Savior. We have to ask for His help. And then as we go through suffering or we deal with our own sin, we keep coming back to God and asking Him to not deal with us according to our sin, but to deal with us according to His steadfast love towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, please do. He loves you and He died for your sins and rose again, and you can have salvation through Him. And I think the, the direct result of understanding the, the mercy and love that we have from God through Christ leads us to our next point, that we should allow our suffering to lead us to praise God for his salvation. And as we read through these verses, 29 through 33, I want you to notice the elevation change that the Davidic king points out or, or asks for in this text. So remember, he's He's so lowly. He's suffering. It's hard. He has enemies greater than the number of hairs on his head. And he, he's, he's just beat down. And he looks to God and he says, set me up on high. So look at those verses with me. He says, but I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord, better than an ox or a bull, which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. And so as we look at this text, in verse 29, we see that he's poor and sorrowful, he's lowly. But as he looks to the Lord's salvation, he says, O God, set me up on high. Take me from my lowly, sorrowful, sinful state and exalt me. Let, let my heart be, be high with you and in, enjoy the wonders of your salvation. I will praise the name of God with a song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And so we see here this, this motion of the lowliness and then seeing the, the blessed highness of God's salvation it brings the Davidic king to praising God. The suffering, he doesn't stay there in despair. He lets it move him to praise God for his character and his salvation towards him. And so he praises God, he magnifies him. And then he says this, uh, praising God, it pleases the Lord better than an ox or a bull which has horns and hooves. And so God would rather have our praise to him for his salvation towards us than us sacrificing our lives for him. He doesn't say that sacrificing is bad, that we should live our lives as a sacrifice to him, but it pleases the Lord more to praise the name of God with a song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And then he points out this pattern of hope in verses 32 and 33 that I think we can follow today, that as we suffer, we can let um, the humility of our suffering and seeing God's salvation and asking him to save us, we can allow that humility to bring us to gladness in God. It says, the humble shall see this and be glad, and you will seek God. Your hearts shall live, for the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. And so I think this, this elevation change, this motion of being so low and humiliated and suffering to looking to God and his salvation is, is really helpful for us. And I think elevation changes make a difference. Uh, one of our sons is working on learning to ride a bike right now. 
and we have a road closure right around the corner from us, and I've driven down that road lots of times, and they just closed it to put in a new road. And driving on that road, I would never have known that it was a hill until your son rides down it 30 times and you carry him and the bike back up the hill. <laughs> and I, as I did that, I'm like, this is, this is a hill. Like, you just never notice it in a car because you just hit the gas pedal and you go. But when you're carrying a 30-pound kid in a bike, uh, elevation makes a big difference. And so I think that's true of God's salvation as well. And I think we need to see and be humble and acknowledge that we're sinful, acknowledge that we're sorrowful and poor, acknowledge that we're suffering, and that puts us in a great spot to see the highness of God's salvation and ask for help. And if you're a believer in Christ today, you, you have this hope. It's really cool in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, it talks about some of the blessings that we have through our union with Christ. And it says that we have been seated with him in the heavenly places. Just think about that for a second. If you've trusted in Christ, spiritually, you are united to Christ and he is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And spiritually, you are there too. And so our salvation in God has already brought us to that elevated status, that highness of God's salvation through unity with Christ. And because we're united with him, we've experienced the highest aspect of our salvation that we can, and that's unity with the Son. And now he's in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and we're there with him. So I acknowledge that it doesn't feel like I'm currently seated in heaven right now, that I'm currently with Jesus in heaven, uh, experiencing the wonders of being in the, the presence of God there in heaven. And you're probably not feeling that either, but it, it's true of us in Christ. So even though it doesn't feel true of us right now, it is true. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing what God has done through the gospel, that he was able to not only pay for our sins and give us perfect righteousness and guarantee that we can be in heaven in the presence of God forever, but not only that, he unites us to the Son and allows us to be exalted with him in heaven even now. And so it doesn't feel like that, but when we're in the, the depths of despair, we have that hope. We have that hope that we have salvation, we're united to Jesus, and we're already living spiritually that exalted uh, position with Christ in heaven. And so I want to encourage you with that, that even when we were dead in our sins, Christ was able to save us, he was able to make us alive, and unite us to Jesus, and take us and exalt us spiritually to heaven with Christ. And so whatever you're going through today, you have that high hope of God's salvation through your union with Jesus, that you are currently seated with Christ in the heavens. And so I hope that's an encouragement to you that even as we lament and, and suffer, we turn our eyes heavenward, and we remember what is true of us in Christ. It's nothing that we have done. It's all blessings that we have received um, in Jesus from God. And so we can be very thankful for those things. And so as we lament to God when we're suffering and need saving, we need to allow that suffering to humble us and bring us to hoping in God's salvation again. And then lastly, 
We need to choose to trust God's purposes behind our suffering. And so in these last couple of verses, we see, there's, there's the one practicing his bike. <laughs> in these last couple of verses, we see that uh, the Davidic king calls on things to praise God. And I want you to notice what he points out in verse 34. He says, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. And so this word for seas, it's just the common word for waters that was used throughout the rest of the psalm when the Davidic king was describing how he felt in his suffering. Remember, he was, the waters come up to his neck, he's sinking, he doesn't have a foothold, and all that description of how he feels in his suffering and how he's about to die, he feels his despair is so bad he's about to die. In the end here, after he's renewed his hope in God's salvation, he says, let the waters and everything that moves in them praise the Lord. And so even the thing that he picks out to describe the torment that he's feeling, the the despair, the suffering, even the waters that he feels are encroaching upon him, he's confident enough in God's salvation that he points to the waters and say, you, you will praise the Lord. Even this thing that's bringing me low, that that makes me feel uh, awful and in despair, even this thing, let it praise the Lord. Let the waters praise the Lord. And he's confident because again in verse 35 he says, for God will save Zion. God will keep his promises. And because of his confidence in God's salvation, he's able to call upon the waters that have enveloped him and are making him suffer. He's able to call upon those and say, you will praise the Lord. You will bow before God because he will save. And so he confidently calls upon the heavens and the earth to praise God and even the waters and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. And so I think there's lots of fun things that he concludes with here. Before he had enemies without count, he's alone, he's suffering by himself, he's underwater, and now he's looking forward to a time when God will save Zion, God will rebuild Judah, God will have the descendants of his servants inherit it and dwell in it. He's so confident that from his lowly state, God is going to make all things right that he calls upon even the waters to praise him. And I think he can do this because he understands what God is doing through his suffering. He chooses to trust God, even though it looks like the waters are going to kill him. He knows that someday the waters will praise the name of the Lord. He knows that right now he's alone and suffering by himself, but he knows someday he'll be in the city dwelling with others and enjoying the salvation of the Lord. So he understands that even as we go through suffering in life, uh, God uses those things for his eternal glory and his eternal purposes. And we see this especially in the life of Jesus. Why did Jesus suffer on the cross for our sins? Why did he go through that awful despair and bearing God's wrath for our sin? He did it because of the hope set before him. He knew that when he did that, he would pay for our salvation and our freedom in him. And he was willing to do that because of that hope. And so he saw beyond the suffering. He saw God's purposes ultimately in what 
uh, he was going through currently, and he trusted God and walked through those by faith in Jesus. And so we see him as he walks through these things. He's not silent. He doesn't hold everything inside. He's honest to God. He tells God what he's feeling and what he's going through, and he asks for deliverance. Even though Jesus knew that he would suffer and die, he still asked God if there was any other way in the garden. He, it wasn't an enjoyable thing that he went through, but he knew that through that suffering, God would accomplish so much for his eternal purposes and eternal blessings that have now come to us. And so I don't know what you might be going through today. I don't know if you're suffering. You will suffer at some point. But I encourage you that as you walk through life, don't just hold it all in. Don't just sink into despair and seclude yourself away from others. I beg you to tell God what you're feeling and to tell someone you trust what you're going through. Don't walk through it alone. This is one of the reasons we have the body of Christ, so that we can carry one another in our weaknesses. And when someone else isn't going through this, they're maybe stronger and able to help carry us through that. And so if, if you're not suffering, uh, look for people who might need help. Go ask someone how they're really doing. See if they uh, can use a listening ear and that you can point them to their hope in Christ. And so it's not a wrong thing to be honest about what we're going through, but we got to let that lowness create a humility in us that doesn't point a finger at God ultimately, but lets us turn to praising God and adoring his salvation that has set us up on high. So I encourage you, uh, don't turn away from the Lord. Turn to him, ask for his help, and walk through life with him no matter what it brings because he has eternal purposes that he's working out. Let's thank the Lord. Father God, we thank you for your precious word and pray that as we go here today, you would help us to lift our eyes to the glories of the gospel and of our salvation in Jesus and that you would help us to uh, keep our eyes focused on you even as this life is sinful and sorrowful and full of suffering, and that you would be glorified through our love and trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.